Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine here in New York City. Our guest today is Dr. Philip S. Barry, MD, MBA, FCCM. As many of you know, Dr. Barry was the immediate past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. In addition, he's a professor of surgery and public health at Weill Medical College of Cornell University here in New York. He's also the director of surgical critical care and the, insur- and the surgical intensive care unit at New York Presbyterian Hospital uh, Cornell campus. Um, Dr. Barry has been a, a veteran SCCM podcaster. I'm always happy to be able to speak with him. And today our topic is going to be decontamination of the oropharynx and the digestive tract in critically ill patients in an attempt to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia. Thank you so much, Dr. Bar- Barry, for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Rich, and good day, everyone. As you mentioned, I think this is my third opportunity to uh, uh, be with the audience uh, on a podcast. Uh, I'm gratified with the reception I've received in the past and hopefully will provide food for thought for everyone listening uh, today and in the future. So this, um, like most of the ones that you and I have done, this is interesting and, and somewhat challenging and controversial, which is why it became so pod-worthy. So um, you and I have been speaking about this particular topic for a few months now, and, and the kernel of the idea came out based on this article uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, actually, I believe back in January, with the first author being Desmet et al., published in the Netherlands, entitled Decontamination of the Digestive Tract and Oropharynx in ICU Patients. But I thought we'd let you begin by perhaps bringing a little historical perspective to the topic, and perhaps if you'd like to talk about um, some of the other ways of decolonizing the digestive tract and the oropharynx. I'd be happy to. As you allude, uh, this is not a new idea, although the publication of this paper, uh, you know, in such a prominent place, the New England Journal of Medicine, um, certainly brings the issue to a forefront again and perhaps uh, onto the radar screens of many uh, critical care practitioners for the first time. Selective digestive decontamination is an idea that has biological validity as a hypothesis, and it's been studied now for about 30 years. It began with Dutch investigators and certainly the Netherlands is probably the area of the world where this is practiced with the most enthusiasm around the world. In fact, I would venture to say that a study of this kind might not have been doable uh, anywhere other uh, than in the Netherlands because of not just having a critical mass of people interested in the topic, but having a critical mass of people experienced in the topic and be able to conduct such a trial properly. The concept of uh, selective digestive decontamination, or SDD, if you will, uh, is that um, in critically ill patients, uh, colonization occurs. 
Uh, that colonization, of course, can occur on the skin and basically any mucosal surface. And attention has turned to the gut mucosa as a reservoir of potential pathogens. It's been a leading hypothesis in the pathogenesis of multiple organ dysfunction syndrome now for about 25 years. The belief is that the stressed gut, uh, be it stressed by shock or hypoperfusion or what have you, uh, loses some of its epithelial uh, mucosal tight junctions and becomes permeable to gut bacteria and their toxins. And uh, either the intact bacteria or toxins such as lipopolysaccharide or bacterial degradation products or maybe even uh, the small protein cytokines generated as part of the inflammatory response may uh, escape the gut, enter the portal venous circulation, uh, and be carried to the liver, uh, whereupon they can cause uh, bacteremia or systemic toxicity if local hepatic host defense mechanisms uh, are overwhelmed by this showering of toxins. And so the idea has been if we can uh, unburden the gut of its uh, bacterial load, uh, there may be nothing uh, in the stressed gut to um, get into the uh, splanchnic circulation and thereby perhaps reduce the risk. Bacterial translocation is an attractive hypothesis, but it's never been proved unequivocally in human beings. There's a lot of indirect evidence, though, including some data from uh, John Alverdi's laboratory at the University of Chicago, uh, a surgeon who's been working very closely on the expression of virulence factors and the upregulation of virulence in Pseudomonas aeruginosa uh, in the stressed gut by methods such as uh, 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 bacterial sensing, crosstalk, and quorum sensing. He's been able to show that Pseudomonas, at least in the gut, uh, can become more virulent when it senses that the host gut mucosa is under stress. So the idea is reasonable. The data have been mixed. Classical STD has always involved uh, applying a paste of several antimicrobials, uh, usually uh, colistin, tobramycin, and amphotericin B, uh, in a paste to all of the exposed surfaces in the oral mucosa. Um, and also uh, administering the same cocktail by gavage, meaning down a nasogastric tube, uh, into the stomach. Classical STD also involved the administration of intravenous cephotaxime, a third-generation cephalosporin, which is known to be associated with multidrug bacterial resistance, particularly among gram-negative bacilli. And so although historical data have suggested that it works, that it does reduce the incidence of infection and does reduce the incidence of pneumonia per se, uh, it doesn't appear to reduce the risk of mortality, is cumbersome, is expensive because these are not off-the-shelf items and the involved pharmacies would have to compound the uh, amphotericin B and the other antibiotics into the paste for administration. Uh, it's uh, time-consuming and labor-intensive for nurses. And so with tongue only partly in cheek, I would say to you, Rich, that this is one area of infectious disease prevention where the data are strong, but nobody does it. And um, something you brought up that I, I thought I was interesting, and 
I guess I kind of misunderstood it or misread it or, or that, that you know, in the Deborah Cook articles were the concerns for inappropriate use of um, GI prophylaxis because you can uh, increase the bacteria and aspirate and cause VAP. One of the other putative mechanisms, though, is also prevention of aspiration of the bacteria as well, in addition to the translocation, if I heard you correctly. <clears throat> That's correct, and we didn't discuss that. Okay. I am um, I'm circumspect about that literature. Okay. Um, there, this all started with a paper um, in the New England Journal in about 1987, uh, where there was a comparison, I think, between antacids and sucralfate, um, and showing that acid reduction led to a higher incidence of gram-negative isolation from gastric acid. Remember that these patients have to be pretty achlorhydric in order for bacteria to even grow in gastric juice. But if the pH is above 4, it does seem to create conditions conducive uh, to bacterial overgrowth. And the idea was to use a um, non-pH uh, mediated gastric cytoprotective agent in the, in the form of sucralfate perhaps reduce uh, bacterial overgrowth in the stomach and reduce the likelihood of aspiration pneumonia following aspiration pneumonitis, which occurs in about one-third of cases. The paper was very poorly controlled. There were crossovers from one group to another, and it was pretty unconvincing. So an entire cottage industry arose in the 1980s examining this. And to my reading, the upshot is uh, that it is not clear that uh, suppression of gastric acid is an independent risk factor for pneumonia. The only thing that really did come out of it clearly is that sucralfate is not a very effective agent for preventing the, those rare cases of uh, stress-related gastric mucosal hemorrhage. Um, one of the issues that uh, you and I had discussed before, and I, I thought to segue into it, was um, this issue of good oral hygiene uh, versus selective oral decontamination, and uh, what's the data for one versus the other, and, and how would you explain these two to, to the average intensivist? Well, so, um, so uh, oral decontamination uh, focuses just on the exposed uh, surfaces, and there have been a lot of attempts to um, look at that. Probably the most studied is topical oral chlorhexidine, uh, but there have been small studies using povidone iodine, uh, small studies using um, uh, isoganin, which is a uh, small peptide uh, antiseptic, uh, and uh, other approaches. So there's even a randomized trial from Barcelona uh, from Jordi Rello's group where they compared chlorhexidine uh, oral care uh, versus chlorhexidine oral care plus electric toothbrushing and couldn't find that the electric toothbrushing um, did anything in addition. So uh, there are some people who believe that simply meticulous oral care is enough. Um, I think that is unanswered, but I would hypothesize probably not. And so therefore we come to the issue of oral decontamination as opposed to digestive decontamination, which means that you paint the exposed oral surfaces with something, and we mentioned several of those compounds, to see if uh, the incidence of pneumonia can be reduced by a simpler uh, method. It still begs the question of whether you want to use antibiotics, which does, I believe, carry a risk of inducing bacterial resistance, 
or whether you'd rather use an antiseptic such as chlorhexidine, uh, which is microbicidal for viruses, fungi, and bacteria and works by several mechanisms and probably does not carry the same risk of increasing resistance and uh, degrading the microbial ecology of the unit. And it seems that, I mean, and this is just anecdotal from my perspective, but that uh, good oral hygiene has taken off to a much, much, much greater degree than any of the kinds of things I read about in this New England Journal paper, right? Yes. Since, since we've uh, come back to the, to the New England Journal paper, um, let me just describe it briefly for everyone. It's a, it's a good study and worth reading. Again, the first author is Desmet, and this appears in the January 1, 2009 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine on page uh, 20. So this is a study of 5,930 patients enrolled into three groups. Uh, 1,990 were assigned to standard care, which basically means good oral hygiene, as you've uh, uh, brought up. 1,904 to selective oral decontamination, or SOD, and 2,045 to SDD. The difference between SOD and SDD is that in SOD, the same three antibiotics, tobramycin, colistin, and amphotericin B, are applied to the uh, oral mucosa and the exposed surface of the endotracheal tube only. Uh, and the SDD administers the uh, antibiotics um, uh, by gavage and also administers the IV cefotaxime. They did show a reduction in the risk of death of about three percentage points uh, or about uh, 14 to 17 percent on a relative basis using either SDD or SOD compared to standard care. One of the things that I think this paper tells us is that uh, obviously this idea is still alive, uh, still being debated and still worthy of consideration. I think it tells us also that the co-administration of intravenous broad-spectrum antibiotics does not add anything. And so if people do want to undertake this or study it, it uh, would be reasonable to omit the IV antibiotics and thereby reduce a substantial risk of inducing resistance. But it begs the question of whether this three-drug cocktail as oral decontamination uh, has any advantage to using a single agent uh, of an antiseptic type such as chlorhexidine. The chlorhexidine uh, literature itself is uh, kind of difficult to interpret as well. There are studies that have looked at 0.12% chlorhexidine mouthwash, which is an over-the-counter mouthwash readily available and widely used in the dental and oral surgery worlds. And then there are compounded 0.2% uh, strengths that have been studied and 2% strength, 2.0% uh, that has been studied as well. Uh, the, the data do suggest that uh, topical chlorhexidine reduces the risk of VAP by about 50%. The signal is strongest in cardiac surgical patients, the vast majority of whom, of course, are elective cases that are not uh, intubated or on the ventilator for as long a period of time, and the lower concentrations the ones that are widely available uh, over the counter in the case of 0.12% may be protective only for a short term. There's only a couple of studies looking at 2% chlorhexidine. They too appear to reduce the risk of pneumonia, uh, although the data are limited. Uh, and it may be that the higher concentration is necessary to have the longer lasting effect. 
And this just as a as a, another point that I was discussing with you offline, we are trying to arrange a podcast about the recent article published in Critical Care Medicine on the chlorhexidine baths. And again, um, it's a very similar concept now that I'm discussing this with you. It's important. Uh, I think that it's been much easier, even in our unit, to get the chlorhexidine bathing going. The nurses actually like doing it. It's, it's not a big problem. Um, but again, in these studies, and I, I guess we can talk about this later, but I don't want to not talk about it, the statistics become very complicated. And in my, you know, one of the major things I was taught in fellowship is they, they shouldn't have to be that complicated most of the time. And that in most of what I was taught is the more complicated the stats gets, the more you need to be worried that you're either co- not covering something up, but, you know, the more you can come up with a hard endpoint in the first place and do the randomized trial to get it right, the clearer the signal is, the more strength there is. And again, I thought maybe with your expertise, I thought some of the important points that came up in this study, especially for teaching fellows, were this issue of cluster randomization, which came up both in this study and in the chlorhexidine bath study. Sorry, sorry I went on so long. Well, that's fine. Uh, I'm not so worried about uh, cluster randomization because that simply means that uh, at the uh, uh, hospitals that were in this study was 13 intensive care units. Uh, there was a randomization list kept at each of the 13 ICUs as opposed to uh, calling into a centralized uh, database. I think that's uh, valid as long as the, the you know the usual precautions for um, uh, maintaining uh, maintaining the blind and maintaining adequate concealment are uh, approached. But you raise a very interesting philosophical point, and that is. Uh, uh, it's very it's very difficult to do good quality clinical research, even uh, when the underlying quality of clinical care is outstanding, to minimize the you know variations that can occur in day to day clinical care. You know we're trying to model biology, and we think linearly, um, but biology is um, nonlinear, uh, complex, and perhaps more. Um, uh, just better described by chaos theory than by uh, the uh, simple linear logic of if A, then B, uh, that we try to test to. So studies are becoming more and more complicated uh, on that basis because people are trying to mimic the clinical uh, situation in the same way that a laboratory investigator who really has a very much more controlled circumstance can control all the variables except one. So this is so researchers are making a well-intentioned attempt to control as many variables as they can conceivably think of, uh, in part because they want to do a valid trial, in part because they want the New England Journal of Medicine or some similarly prestigious journal to be interested in their work when it's ready for publication. Uh, they want to make it as bulletproof as possible so that some uh, uh, cranky reviewer uh, you know, won't uh, won't take umbrage with with something, and so you end up with complex uh, science. The problem with complex science is the more complicated you make it, the less applicable it is to the real world. Uh, paradoxically, because you've put so many conditions, so many experimental conditions on your work that they may not apply in the vast majority of patients. By trying to cover every contingency you may, uh, in fact, describe only a handful of your patients. Well, and, and 
just wording that one other way is uh, the, the, this recurring theme that I'm sure you've seen even more than I have in critical care is going that last step. And there's a leap of faith that has to be taken by the practicing intensivist to say, yes, this convinces me. And I, my sense is the more complicated the stats are, the less likely you are to be able to convince the average intensivist. Well, right? that's, uh, that's perhaps true. Uh, and, you know, no one can predict how an individual is going to respond to you know, new data presented to them. Will, will it have face validity, and will it solve a problem that they've been facing? Uh, perhaps. Um, but Deborah Cook has, uh, you know, the uh, you know, esteemed methodologist at McMaster up in Hamilton has talked about this several times. There's a bell-shaped curve of adopters, and, you know, some people are early adopters and will be first on the bandwagon uh, for everything. There are other people who are so deeply skeptical that they probably will never change, even if faced with overwhelming evidence. And then the vast majority of us fall somewhere, you know, on the 90% in between. I tend to be an early adopter, but not the earliest. Uh, but there are 50% of us, you know, according to the Poisson distribution, are late adopters by definition. It also brings up another interesting issue, and that is parsing information in an era of instantaneous availability of information. Twenty years ago, when we were studying uh, beta blockade for uh, long-term treatment following myocardial infarction, um, it was pretty much proved uh, that, it, that, that these patients needed uh, beta blockade absent a contraindication after about the fifth trial. Yet uh, 20 more trials were done, a total of about 25, which served only to make the um, uh, data even more bulletproof. But even now, 25 uh, years later, uh, process improvement uh, shows clearly that about 15 to 20 percent of patients hospitalized in the United States for acute myocardial infarction don't go home on a beta blocker. So, um, you know, even 25 years later, there are some extremely uh, late adopters involved. On the other hand, you have this STD paper come out. Uh, a great example that I talked to with my residents uh, is the nice sugar trial of tight glycemic control that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in March. We, we now can get information so instantaneously, we parse it so carefully, uh, almost in real time with the publication, uh, that we tend to think that the latest paper is the definitive word, when in fact it is one more piece of the puzzle. Um, at our uh, shop, uh, a lot of people in the um, uh, quality improvement uh, circles uh, wanted to completely undo our insulin administration protocols based on the NICE uh, sugar trial, when in fact, especially in surgical patients, which is my world and yours as well, uh, there's a lot of evidence that tight glycemic control is very important for surgical patients, and even in the NICE sugar trial signal at 0.07, that uh, tight glycemic control benefits trauma patients. So I fear that in this era of instantaneous information, we may be too quick to judge, too quick to latch on to the results of the latest trial just because it is the latest trial and forget all of the work that has led up to it 10 or 15 years uh, in the making. Well, I'm really glad. I'm very glad you brought this up, actually, because it's something I wanted to ask you a couple more points about. And it comes up in, in every critical care setting that I worked in where uh, you can. There are people that take pride in being the early adopters, and there's a third part to this that I'm sure to comment on is 
But there's been a bit of a backlash recently with not wanting government agencies to be those early adopters and forcing us to make these. For I mean, the, the issue of the tight glucose control is what is being talked about in the critical care literature as that, as an example, where, okay, but the pendulum, most people feel swung too hard that a good ICU was good only if it had tight glucose control. And maybe if you want to talk about, I mean, just sort of finish up that argument. Well, I think, there, I think that is true. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there is... Uh, uh, external regulatory and sometimes legislative pressure uh, on us to um, do the best we can, um, apart from our own zeal to do the best we can anyway. And sometimes regulatory zeal or um, legislative mandates um, don't keep up with the science, or maybe they're interpreting something in the science that uh, simply can't be done. Another example that you might to, uh, uh, look to is the so-called pay-for-performance initiative from CMS, which is really no pay for no performance, where a lot of these um, entities, such as pulmonary embolism, um, uh, are believed to be 100% preventable when, in fact, they are not. And the third-party payers, Medicare so far, but others will undoubtedly follow, are saying, well, yes, you have you you have to prevent this. Well, the only thing we can't prevent biology. Well, ventilator associated pneumonia. Do, here would be the this is a perfect example. Ventilator associated pneumonia, just our topic today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we so. can't prevent it absolutely. Um, uh, what we can do is try to make sure that our ensemble of prevention tactics is optimally designed and optimally carried out. Uh, and uh, therein lies the question of, for example, whether um, um, oral decontamination should be added to uh, good oral care. We have done so at our institution. Another example that I've been um, uh, studying recently is the whole question of timing of antibiotic therapy as relates to um, hospitalized patients for community-acquired pneumonia. It's not necessarily the bailiwick of critical care, but I think it is a paradigm of um, regulatory intervention. Uh, based on retrospective studies going all the way back to 1990, a standard was established that was initially set at eight hours, then dropped to four hours, subsequently relaxed to six hours for the timing of the first dose of antibiotic um, in patients with suspected community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, the problem is, and the reason why the standard was relaxed, was that there was clear evidence that resources were being shifted to the process improvement uh, part of it rather than to the actual patient care part of it, and that people were uh, misdiagnosing pneumonia at a higher rate uh, so as to meet the standard of treating within the time window. So even though we may understand biology, uh, we may not understand how to interdict it from a regulatory perspective. And so maybe I'd uh, let you conclude because you sort of hinted that y you are doing this here, but you said that you're uh, more use, you're, you favor chlorhexidine, you, you were saying, or, or do you want to share with us your personal perspective on this? Well, it's a, it's a personal but also an institutional perspective right. because we have changed this for all of our intensive care units at Cornell. Uh, we're providing standard oral hygiene. Uh, we are also uh, by order. It does not. Um, uh, does, it's not uh, something that happens automatically. But uh, basically, anyone who's intubated and expected to be mechanically ventilated for 48 hours or more uh, gets uh, topical chlorhexidine uh, mouthwash 
um, uh, given in addition to the standard oral care regimen as part of, uh, I guess you would call it an enhanced uh, ventilator bundle. Um, but 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 you don't actually uh, do this these this three, three antibiotic oral pace, and you certainly don't give systemic antibiotics at this point yet as as part of this kind of a regimen, right? That that's correct. Uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to change, followed this literature since the '70s and early '80s. Had many many opportunities to institute it. Was always worried about the IV third generation cephalosporin and decided thus uh, not to implement SDD or SOD uh, as uh, envisioned and carried out by the Dutch. In fact, we stopped using third-generation cephalosporins empirically in our intensive care unit back in the mid-'90s for fear of inducing uh, multidrug resistance. Right. I remember you mentioned that on one of the other podcasts. I mean, I'm just... Between you and me, uh, it is still a somewhat counterintuitive thing, especially in a surgical ICU, to be upfront when you don't think the patient has an infection, giving a, I think they limited it here to four days of, of an intravenous antibiotic. And it just sort of goes against a lot of what people like you train, train people like me to do, you know? Yes, and uh, it also runs counter to uh, some other initiatives that are occurring in surgery through something called uh, SCIP the Surgical Care Improvement Project, which really doesn't touch intensive care units very much, but makes sure that um, patients receive uh, prophylactic uh, antibiotics before surgery uh, appropriately and for an appropriate duration. And so we have a regulatory mandate to actually ensure that antibiotic prophylaxis is given for no longer than 24 hours to surgical patients. And here, on the other hand, we're talking about potentially giving even broader-spectrum antibiotics to patients um, for 96. That sounds like uh, something like that would be a point-counterpoint in an SCCM or something like that, right? Could well be. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking today again uh, with my friend and colleague, Dr. Phil Barry from New York Presbyterian Hospital Cornell Medical Center, and we've been talking about decontamination of the digestive tract as part of prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry, for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Dr. Savell, um, and good day to everyone. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website, at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for the iCriticalCare podcast archives and future podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program offers hospitals an unparalleled opportunity to benefit from the experiences of peer leaders dedicated to critical care performance improvement. Through the use of engaging tools provided by SCCM and others, Paragon utilizes a combination of self-assessment, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. Hospitals interested in becoming a Paragon participant to positively transform their critical care units should contact Lori Harmon, RRT, MBA, Paragon Critical Care Manager, at 1-847-493-6403 or via email at lharman at sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.